Hey, you found us. This is a podcast of Carbon Valley Lutheran Church in Firestone, Colorado, just north of Denver. We here at CVL firmly believe that community is built, not found, that it's local, not virtual. So we encourage everyone to find a local church and help them build their community and be a service to them. With that said, we pray that these podcasts supplement and not replace your spiritual journey. If you'd like to learn more about us at CVL, you can check us out on Facebook or on the web at carbonchurch.com, or even better, stop by in person. We worship at 10 a.m. on Sunday mornings. May the Lord bless your day. Begin in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, brothers and sisters in Christ. Happy that you're joining me here today. We are starting a new sermon series on the Old Testament book of Esther, uh, and that's why I'm happy that you're here, because I think you're really gonna, going to enjoy it. I've never preached on the book of Esther, so this is one that's especially enjoyable for me. Um, and I think it's one that's going to speak intimately to our, our current setting and, and kind of our American culture in which we live in. We're going to see that for lots of different reasons as we go through this sermon series. Uh, but today is the very first sermon in that series, and the overarching theme of the entire book of Esther is the silence that shouts. And so we're going to talk a little bit today about what you can learn in the absence of, of information. And that's what we're going to look at as God shares us incredible things kind of um, out of the shadows, the silence that is going to shout throughout Esther. Uh, I learned that that fact um, to be true when I was in college. As some of you know, I've worked lots and lots of different jobs, but one of my favorite ones was, was for working, uh, working for clout window and wall washing. I did that for a, a couple summers. And we did all kinds of things there. Uh, we obviously washed windows, we washed uh, houses, we painted, but we did a lot of janitorial work as well. And so we would go in and we would clean up old construction or old buildings. And one thing that we did a lot of was, was fire and smoke reclamation. So if, if a house had burned, and as you know, many houses are so sealed so tight that maybe one room will burn and the rest of the house is spared. Uh, but what does most of the damage is actually not the flames, it's the smoke that pours out through the rest of the house. And so as young college men, we'd come in and we would clean up your house. Most importantly, we'd, we'd clean out all of the smoke out of your home so that it didn't have to be, to be uh, um, stripped all the way down and, and kind of leveled to the ground. So the very, one of the very first times that I did that, I remember going into the house and from the outside, the damage didn't look bad at all. In fact, you maybe wouldn't even know. You could see a little bit of smoke and scorch that had come out one of the windows. But from the outside, it looked as though it wasn't bad at all. But as soon as you opened up those doors, you could, you could smell the acrid smell just kind of pour over you. Um, and it wasn't like a good campfire smell. This is the smell of like refrigerators burning and plastic burning and, and foam pillows burning and all these kind of smells. Um, and on some level, it was just almost a little bit sickening, that smell that would come out. And so I can remember walking into that first one, and we, we went straight into the living room. And by the time we showed up on the scene, uh, people had already taken and cleared out all of the, the furnishings and everything that had formerly been in that living room. But it was a living room like my living room. Uh, and, but all, everything had been cleaned out. And so I walked in there and you start to see the power of that fire and the impact that actually just the smoke itself had had on that room. Because when I looked around, I could see outlines 
of nearly everything that had existed in that room. In fact, if all of the furnishings of that entire living room had been out on the lawn, I know I could have taken each one of those and put them exactly where they were meant to be. So where, did the, where was the couch? Easy to see. An outline with smoke around it, right? I could put a couch, I could put a chair, I could put end tables. You could see where all of those things had sat when that smoke had infiltrated that room, even to the point of pictures. And so you looked on the walls and you could see where every single picture had hung. Now you didn't know what the content of those pictures were, but you knew very well that something had been there. And maybe that's a good illustration as we jump into the book of Esther. We talk about the silence that shouts. Sometimes the absence of information is information unto itself, isn't it? Sometimes the conspicuous absence of something tells us volumes about what is happening in that scene. When I walked into that room, the absence of all of that stuff told me that something powerful had been there, that there had been a fire, and if need be, I could have replicated that entire room simply from the absence of what wasn't there. I think there's some truth to that as we walk through the book of Esther. We talk about the silence that shouts. It's a book that that is written in a little different literary style and comes to us and hits us in a little different way than maybe some of the other books that we're used to within the pages of Scripture. But for that reason, the author and the literary device that he uses makes the absence of certain things loom even larger. You're going to see why that's the case throughout the book of Esther. But I think uh, for us and for our time right here and now, the silence that shouts is a really powerful testimony to God's sustainability, to God's powerful working in our world, in our lives, and even within our culture. And so that's what we're going to look at here today. Uh, simply, and because this is the first sermon in our sermon series, we're going to have a little more extended introduction to the historical setting of what's happening in Esther. So that'll kind of be the first part of our sermon. Uh, And then we're going to take a look at two aspects of power at the end, because King Xerxes wields a certain amount of power, um, not in a wonderful way, but wields power. We're going to talk about uh, power and what it means to to have a lack of power. But then we're also going to talk about power um, and, and when we have it, how we are to use that for God's benefit and, and for the benefit of the people around us. And so those are kind of the three parts that we're going to look at. Uh, we'll look at the historical context, lack of power, and then use of power at the end of our text. So let's jump right into it. Uh, the, the setting for this book of Esther is a real fascinating one. Um, it takes place, the book of Esther specifically, we, we believe takes place about 480 BC. And so Esther is always grouped with two other books, Ezra and Nehemiah. And these three books kind of form uh, um, some of the context around what is happening to the Israelites at about that time. Now, we have to go back from 480 a little ways, specifically to 486 BC. So um, the Israelites, Israelites and the nation of Israel had had fractured. So the 10 northern tribes had been conquered by Persia and had been shipped off. The two southern tribes had lingered and held on for a little bit longer, but eventually by 586 BC, everyone in Israel had been shipped off to different places, whether it was Persia or Babylon. Uh, they had simply been conquered. They were slaves of another country. They were now living in foreign countries in foreign lands. And so by 586, that's what's happening. And none of that should have really been a surprise because it had been prophesied by God. He said, um, you have kicked me out of your lives, out of your country. You have chosen to go your own way. And because of that, you're going to be 
discipline. And the form of that discipline will come in. You are going to be conquered. You will not have the heights of and glory of your nation of Israel like you had under King Solomon or David. Uh, those were going to be far in the past. Now you're going to be subjects of another country. So the Israelites had been shipped off. Uh, we know some of the people that had been shipped off in that exile. We think of Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and, and, and all of those Israelites that had gone into a foreign land. But the point of our text here today and where Esther is uniquely located is it is a, a story, it is the history of Esther, a Jew, and her interaction in the capital city of Susa under the king of the entire known world at that time, Xerxes. And it, it was entirely a story of that. So at this point, some of the Israelites had started to go back to Jerusalem. Their 70 years of Babylonian exile had been completed, and remnants of the Jews were going back to Jerusalem and started to rebuild the temple and started to rebuild the the walls in the city of Jerusalem. And in fact, if you've been here at CVL with us, we went through the entire book of Nehemiah. And Nehemiah led an expedition back to Jerusalem to rebuild the city walls. So Esther is falling right in the middle of Ezra and Nehemiah. And it and she is a snippet of what continued to happen back in the um, capital of Susa. So picture this. The Jews are in a really precarious position. A remnant had been allowed to return, but the main power in Xerxes was still in Susa. And, and the, uh, the return and rebuilding of the nation of Israel was still very much in doubt. In fact, at the snap of a finger, those Jews could have been completely wiped out. And so um, the Jews as a people and the gospel which they held were hanging precariously um, on a string. It, it was a very, um, it was a tightrope that they were on. Enter into that the story of Esther. And really, that's where this silence is going to shout. It is ultimately the story of God working in the shadows in the, um, the biggest country and, and kingdom of the world for the sake of a small remnant of people, the Jewish people, the gospel they held, and ultimately Jesus who would be born from that line. And so they really, that's the picture of what's happening in the book of Esther. It's a fascinating one. And I, I think you're going to enjoy it. So let's jump into it. I want to read verses 1 through 4, and that will set the scene a little bit and the characters, the people that we're going to be talking about here. Beginning at verse 1. This is what happened during the time of Xerxes. The Xerxes who ruled over 127 provinces stretching from India to Cush. At that time, King Xerxes reigned from his royal throne in the citadel of Susa. And in the third year of his reign, he gave a banquet for all his nobles and officials. The military leaders of Persia and Media, the princes and the nobles of the provinces were present. For a full 180 days, he displayed the vast wealth of his kingdom and the splendor and glory of his majesty. Okay, so that last verse kind of lays out the sweep of the story of Esther. Um, it, is, it is some of the biggest, grandest things that you'll ever find. In fact, as we go on, we listen to all the description of the banquets, and Xerxes spared no expense, so imagine having a party that lasted 180 days long. 
remarkable, right? Um, all of the opulence and, and the, the majesty and wealth and, and, and all of that were contained in Xerxes and in that capital of Susa and in the Persian Empire. And you're going to see on your screen a map of the size of that. And to get the scope of that, um, there were no China or Russia or India or, or any other nations that had some power within the world. Um, Xerxes had all the power. This was the world power at the time. They ruled almost all of the known populated world from the east to the west and down to the south up through the Nile River. This was it. So if you wanted the seat of earthly power, it was in Susa. And if you wanted to know the man who ruled all of that earthly power, it was a man named Xerxes. So that's the picture that God is painting for us in the beginning of the book of Esther. And that's where it becomes a little bit interesting. And actually, that's where the book of Esther sometimes gets beaten up a little bit, um, that, that it is a book that doesn't necessarily fit with some of the other Old Testament books and within the context of Scripture. And I think there's good reason for that. First off is that the book of Esther never explicitly mentions God, which is a little bit strange for a book in the Bible, right? Uh, Esther never mentions God in the entire book. Second of all, you don't hear uh, these believers praying. You don't hear what I'd like to say, what I like to call religious speak. Like you don't hear them praying and and uh, and verses like Daniel who goes up and prays to the Lord and points to the east and does all these things. You just don't hear religious language within the book of Esther. And so for some of those reasons, people have said, well, maybe Esther shouldn't actually be um, in that Old Testament. And yet, that's the exact point of Esther. In fact, that's the literary device that the writer of Esther is using. And actually, I think that's why it's so powerful for you and I. See, the entire book of Esther is written not from the perspective of Jerusalem. It's written from the perspective of Susa. And what do I mean by that? If you were writing a book and you lived in Jerusalem, the heart and soul of the Israelites and the Jewish people, where God's temple was you would purposefully, you would pepper your entire book. And in fact, your book probably wouldn't go very far if you didn't talk about God all the time, right? Jerusalem, in some sense, was the, the religious seat of the Israelite people. Susa was as far away from that as you could get. It was completely secular and pagan. God was not present in Xerxes' life. God was not present in the people uh, of Susa. Um, it was completely a secular entity. And so if you're writing a book and you're sitting in Jerusalem, you'd probably use certain language, but that's not where the writer is at. He's in Susa, and Esther is in the city of Susa, completely secular, completely godless. And so that is kind of the point of the book of Esther. The book of Esther shows us that God works not only in Jerusalem, but he also works in Susa. God not only works with the glory and the splendor of the temple of God and in miraculous, amazing ways, but he also works in the shadows. He works um, world history for his purpose and for the good of his people. Sometimes, um, not even with the knowledge of the, the ruling class at the time, Xerxes had no idea why these things were happening, and yet all along God was pulling the strings and was guiding history for the sake of this small remnant of Israelites who held the gospel promise. And so, 
really, the book of Esther, all you get is a book that is showing us how to live in a world where God is largely um, not revered and is not present within that culture. And that sounds familiar, doesn't it? Because I think increasingly, we as believers are existing within a culture and within a world and within a nation where God is not only not spoken about, um, but actively repressed. That was how these Jews and Esther had to exist in the city of Susa. And so, the lack of religious speech, I think it comes from the point of view of the, the literary device that that writer was using. The point of it was, God not only works in Jerusalem, but he also works in Susa. Maybe it looks a little bit different, but at the end of the day, God is working in all of those areas. And so that's why I think for that reason, this book of Esther is really fascinating for us because it's a peek at secular life. It's a peek at how to live as believers in a completely secular, non-believing society. And I think we're going to be able to glean a lot from that. Let's continue on then. We're going to look at two different areas of power and specifically how Xerxes used that power and how God expects and how God uses his power on our behalf. So let's continue on verses 10 through 11. Uh, And our scripture says this, On the seventh day when King Xerxes was in high spirits from wine, he commanded the seven eunuchs who served him, Mehuman, Biztha, Harbona, Bigtha, Abagtha, Zethar and Karkas to bring before him Queen Vashti wearing her royal crown in order to display her beauty to the people and nobles for she was lovely to look at. Now let's pause there a little bit because we have to pull that apart exactly what's happening within that Persian society and with with King Xerxes. Now remember he first had a party that was 180 days long. That was pretty substantial, right? That's a pretty substantial party. Um, But Apparently, that wasn't enough. And so then he declares that they're going to have, they're going to kind of crank it up a notch for seven days straight and all of the things that were involved there. So um, King Xerxes, Xerxes had this kind of select group of people that were there and they partied for seven days straight. And it says that he, he told his stewards to give people as much to drink as they could handle. Literally, um, it was open bar for seven days straight. So if you um, are, are getting married or thinking of having an open bar at your wedding, it, like most of us can't afford it for two hours. Xerxes had an open bar for seven days straight. Now, where do you think that led everyone, including Xerxes? Yeah, this is not a leap for us. Uh, it led Xerxes to be in high spirits. Now, that's the Bible's way saying Xerxes was drunk, right? He, was, he, was, he had drank way too much. He was not making good decisions. And so it's in that inebriated state that he comes up with his best decision. And we always make our best decisions when we've drank too much, right? Well, Xerxes did the same. So he comes up with this idea that he is going to show off his wife, his queen, whose name was Vashti. And you can imagine maybe the setting that is there. They've been partying for seven days straight. Most scholars will say that 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 more intimate party probably contained as many as a thousand of his officials, all men. Okay. So now the scene has been set. Seven days of open bar, all men. Xerxes has the bright idea that he's going to show off his beautiful wife named Vashti. 
he sends some eunuchs to go get her. Uh, now, if you don't know what a eunuch is, um, a eunuch were those that were uh, actually demasculated. So these were, were men that were no threat to the king's wife or to any women at all. And so why would Xerxes send eunuchs to go retrieve his wife? Well, we get a little bit of a hint at that within our text, and sometimes you have to read a little bit between the line. But most scholars uh, will have, or most scholars actually agree that what Xerxes was sending, the reason he was sending eunuchs, was because of the request he was making of Vashti. He wanted Vashti to come, and it says that he wanted her to come to wearing her royal crown. But most will say that that's about all that he wanted her wearing. And so that's the setting. Xerxes is drunk with a thousand of his best friends and he tells Vashti to come and show off for them. Not a great choice on the front end. And to Vashti's credit, what does she say? Surprise, surprise, no. <laughs> I'm not coming. I'm not going to come and show off for your friends. I'm not going to be this, this kind of trophy wife that you're going to walk around. She simply says, no, I'm not going to come right? Well, that causes a little bit of a problem because now the king has been disobeyed. So in his continued high spirits and inebriated state, what does Xerxes do? He says, okay, I'm going to consult some people. Who should I consult? Oh yeah, more of my buddies, more of my men who are with me at the party. And so he goes to his men and he asks them, what should I do? My wife, this queen, has, has disobeyed me. And they come up with the fantastic answer that you should divorce her, you should send her away, and you should make a decree to all the other men of the entire uh, Persian Empire. Um, she has disobeyed you, and you need to put her in her place. Now, this is a little bit of an aside, but drinking too much does not lead to good decisions. And then asking your drinking buddies to help you with further decisions is also not a good idea. So there's this cascading events of, of abuse of power from King Xerxes. But we've seen that in our lives as well, haven't we? In fact, on some level, maybe we shouldn't even be surprised by that, that Xerxes was firmly going to use the power that he had for his own benefit. And that's generally what that Persian society was, and especially Susa and especially King Xerxes. God was completely absent, and so different levers of power were in play in that secular society. Within Susa and within Persian society, there was one thing that mattered to each gender. For men, it mattered how much wealth you had and power you could wield. For women, it mattered what you looked like and your physical beauty. Does that sound familiar at all? Within secular society in Susa, the only thing that mattered was the size of a man's wallet and the beauty of a woman. It sounds vaguely familiar, doesn't it? In fact, I would argue we're not far from that, are we, in our American culture, where we value wealth and respect and power, or we value youth and beauty and looks, those are the ways that you navigate our largely secular society now. Now, for us as believers, we know that God operates in different ways than that. Xerxes 
knew and in an infantile childish way used his power for his own good pleasure. If his wife, if his queen disobeyed him, he sent her away. And as you're going to see in the coming chapter, he gathered to himself thousands of other women who were beautiful as well. Within that secular society, power and how you wield it, beauty and looks and how you use it can get you ahead in that society. But as believers, we know that God's kingdom works in a far different way. The levers of power in God's kingdom work vastly different than the levers of power in a godless secular society. And we know that and we feel that as believers. And I think that there's some reactions that maybe generally we leap to as believers. When we look at our uh, American culture or the world around us and we sit back and we say, I just can't believe it. I don't know what this world is coming to, right? We see the moral decline and we decry it and and we see all of these things and we see in large part, and statistics back this up, that Christianity has gone from being the majority within America to being a vast minority when we feel as though as believers that there was a time when we as Christians had influence within our culture and we are squarely in a camp where we do not have that influence. And for us as believers, I think that there is a reaction to that that kind of come natu- comes naturally. And I, I like to separate it into four different areas. I think um, two of those are emotional re- responses. Two of those are lifestyle responses of how when we look at the world around us, how we as believers with hearts of faith react to it. So two are emotional, two are lifestyle. Uh, the first, uh, first two emotional ones, the f- first is maybe you get angry. Maybe you're the type of Christian that is just angry. And uh, anytime you can, you let people hear about it. The moral decline of our nation and the moral decline of our, pol- of our politicians. And anytime on Facebook and anywhere you can get to it, um, you're just hammering it, right? And anger is the prevailing emotion of the day. Anger at the government. Anger at the nation you live in. Anger at the people around you that would make such poor decisions. But anger is the, the, the guiding feeling and emotion that comes spewing out of your mouth um, and out of your actions at every moment. And I think that's an emotional reaction. The second emotional reaction, I think, can be anxiety and fear. You look to the world around us and you, you look at the world in which your kids and your grandkids are going into and you may not even recognize it. You say, I can't even imagine the things that are happening now that I'm seeing in the newspaper. I cannot imagine that that would have ever happened in my lifetime. And I think it can drive us to anxiety and fear where we are simply afraid of what the next day is going to bring. We maybe even pray, come Lord quickly, end this world because I just cannot understand how it can get any worse. And so um, the prevailing emotion in our life is that we are batted around in our anxiety and in our worry and it eats us up and it causes us to be fearful for what comes next. And so I think those are two of the reactions maybe that we emotionally can tend to. But I think those then feed into some actual reactions in how we live, lifestyle reactions. And so as believers, I think we maybe are pushed into two different camps. The first is Um, We see all of these things happening and we're living in a world where people don't respect God and God is not present and it seems to be going down the tubes and down the drain faster and faster. And so we decide to cloister ourselves away like monks uh, in a monastery. 
And so we pull back from the world around us and we only interact with other Christians and we only interact with people that we deem safe and we only exist in this kind of little Christian bubble that exists somewhere over here while the rest of culture is happening over here and we're kind of an attachment to it. Uh, we, we hide ourselves away in a metaphorical uh, castle just holding on until the day that Jesus returns. And I think that's a lifestyle choice that sometimes we unknowingly make. But sometimes we go the other way. Sometimes we dive headlong into the culture around us and and we dive headlong into that and we let the culture around us be the prevailing uh, thought and word for how we live our lives, for how we treat people, for how we use our power within our world. We let culture define that and decide that rather than God and the pages of scripture. And so we get so thoroughly assimilated into the culture and world around us that we almost entirely disappear and at times faith completely is overwhelmed and and disappears as well. And so when we exist in this largely secular society called Susa, or maybe called America, I think there's four reactions that we tend towards. Either we become angry, become anxious, we hide, or we become assimilated. But there's problems with each one of those for you and I as Christians, believers. Um, Angry Christians, Christians, just make the world more angry. Anxious Christians just make the world more anxious and worrisome and eats us up as well. And if we hide ourselves away in a castle or we get fully assimilated into culture, in either of those lifestyle choices, either of those cases, the gospel completely is swallowed up and disappears. And that's an issue for us Because God has planted you in this country at this time for a reason. He put Esther in her time in Susa, in the presence of King Xerxes, for a reason. God used Esther, and we're going to see that throughout the book of Esther. God used Esther to save and redeem a small remnant of believers who would go on to share that gospel message with the entire world. And so God has placed you here right now for a purpose. Do we know completely what that purpose is? No, we don't. In fact, we can't look into the mind of God, but we know for a fact without a shadow of a doubt that God has placed you here for a reason. And so how do we use our power? How do we use our witness? How do we use the power of God in our lives for the benefit of the secular world in which we live in? Well, I think... To answer that, we first need to know how God has used his power on our behalf. And you get a little bit of a taste of that in our text. It's just a short half phrase in verse 19. Let me read that for you. It just says this. Um, the, the, one of the king's royal advisors is talking to him. And he says this. Also, let the king give her royal position, speaking of Vashti, let the king give her royal position to someone else who is better than she Hmm. Almost feels like a throwaway line, doesn't it? But let the king give her royal position to someone that is more worthy. In the context of this book of Esther, you know who that'll be. That's Esther. But that little line points to something far greater than just Esther or you and I. 
Because ultimately, God worked world history and opened up world history so that a king, a true king, could enter and use his power not for his own benefit, but for the benefit of the entire world. And so when we see that um, he is making way for someone who is better, ultimately that points our eyes in the midst of this secular culture to the actual birth, life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. It points us to Jesus. It points us to all of world history and all of these things that maybe Xerxes would have said are a series of coincidences. All of these things God was working towards Jesus Christ, God, true God and true man, living his life in history, in Israel, sacrificing his life on the cross for you and I. And so um, it's often been said that Christianity, unlike any other religion or philosophy, is more steeped and built and interwoven into history than anything else you will find. And that is no better, um, that is no better illustrated than the life, death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. A series of, con- of coincidences a random series of historical events that came about? I don't think so. God not only works in grand, fantastic, miraculous ways, but he is constantly at work in the shadows, guiding you, guiding us, guiding Christ into our world in order to guide us from this world into eternity. And that's the comfort that we have as we start this book of Esther. There may be times when you feel as though God is not present, that he is not working. And yet the reality that the book of Esther shares with us is that he always is, always has been, and always will be working on your benefit, for your benefit and on your behalf. That's the God we have. He is grand, he is magnificent, and he works both in visible ways and invisible ways. But at the end of the day, it is you who he works for. Christ laid down his life on the cross for you. He wields power in a way that Xerxes never could and never did. Jesus, who was all-powerful, used his gifts, his divine nature, his perfect life, and laid them down sacrificially for you on the cross. And so as believers, as we go forward through this book of Esther, and as we look at um, the secular society in which we live in, we are going to see that how God uses power and asks us to use our power as believers is vastly different than the secular world around us. And that's a good thing for the secular world around us because it's only through you and I that we are able to share the gospel and the true king that we have in Jesus Christ. Amen.